This is the Green Street News. Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on what in the world is happening and how it could impact your own health and safety. Welcome back. Our subject today is plastic and the worldwide contamination being caused by this combination of fossil fuels and chemicals as plastic items of all kinds find their way into our environment and begin to break down into smaller and smaller pieces without ever actually going away. Now they're showing up in the placentas of humans. That incredible and alarming story and Patty with the week's headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Okay, Patty Wood, so what happened in the world of environmental health this week? Okay, three good articles. Uh, this one is published in the New York Times, written by Lisa Friedman and Vivian Jang, and it is entitled, 3M Reaches $10.3 Billion Settlement in Forever Chemicals Suits. Ouch, $10.3 billion. $10.3 billion. not enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> The chemical and manufacturing giant 3M reached a $10.3 billion settlement on Thursday with U.S. cities and towns over their claims that the company contaminated drinking water with so-called forever chemicals used in everything from firefighting foam to nonstick coatings. Under the sweeping settlement, 3M said it would pay out the money over 13 years to any cities, counties, and others across the country to test for and clean up perfluoroalkyl and polyfluoroalkyl substances known as PFAS in public water supplies. 3M, which is facing about 4,000 lawsuits by states and municipalities for PFAS contamination, did not admit any liability. The company said the settlement covered remediation to water suppliers that detected the chemical, quote, at any level or may do so in the future, end quote. So this 10 point whatever billion dollars is supposed to cover every municipality in the country that has a problem? It's going to be way, way more than it that. It says to any city, county and others across the country test for. Yeah, well, we'll see. The deal followed a similar agreement with Shemores, DuPont, and Corteva, which agreed on June 2nd to pay $1.19 billion into a fund that will be used to remove PFAS from public drinking water systems. PFAS have been linked to liver damage, developmental issues, reduced immune function, and cancer, and are referred to as forever chemicals because of how persistently they remain in the human body and the environment. The synthetic chemicals are so ubiquitous that nearly all Americans, including newborns, carry PFAS in their bloodstreams. And as many as 200 million Americans are exposed to PFAS through their tap water, according to a peer-reviewed 2020 study. Hundreds of communities across the country have sued 3M and other PFAS manufacturers, claiming that their soil and water were contaminated by the chemicals, which are also used in food packaging and a wide variety of other products to make them resistant to heat, water, oil, and corrosion. This is all the, this is the chemical that's in pizza boxes. This is the chemical that's in pizza boxes, firefighting foam, microwave popcorn bags, mm. you name it. Yeah. Practically every paper container that people are actually switching to instead of plastic because of the plastics issue, but the paper containers are coated with PFAS. It's called you can't win. Hmm. Well, you can, you know, with stainless steel yeah. water bottles. You and, have you to know, use metal, reusable metal glass, glass stainless steel, yeah, bring your own, 
Not as easy as it seems, yeah. certainly not as convenient, but it is where we need to go in order to protect ourselves from these chemicals. Yeah. I still don't think that's nearly enough money. If they think they're going to cap it at 10.3, I think they got another thing coming. Okay. What else you got? Okay. So this is also a very interesting article. It's something that I think about quite frequently. Um, this was published in The Guardian, written by Cassie Polameni. And it's entitled, It's Not the Job of Children to Fix the Climate Crisis. We mm. Must Show Them Grown-Ups Are Leading the Way. Okay. In the 1990s, we were all very concerned about chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, and other greenhouse gases, although not enough to lose sleep over them. Our world was smaller then, information thinner on the ground. Dial-up internet was years away from being a fixture in most homes, and we collected cardboard circles from chip packets. It's easy to wearily suggest kids today have it better, but we didn't feel that we had to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. We watched Captain Planet. We recycled. Sometimes we picked up extra rubbish if we were being punished or feeling virtuous, but we mostly trusted adults that had things in hand. There was never any suggestion it might be too late to turn the ship around. And that's a luxury today's kids don't have. They navigate an increasingly complex world with more awareness than ever before about what is going wrong, and it's taking a toll. A survey of 10,000 young people in 2021 found 84% were at least moderately worried about climate change, 59% were extremely worried, and 45% said it negatively affected their daily life and functioning. The low hum of climate anxiety is building to a roar and it's having a profound effect on kids' mental health. Ecotherapy focuses on a sense of awe and connection to nature, which some therapists suggest might be more helpful to kids than encouraging them to care for the environment, a responsibility that should belong to us as adults. Things such as hiking in green spaces, creating art in or with nature, playing with animals, even community gardening can help kids avoid climate anxiety and burnout. This in turn may ensure that they are in a better place to affect change as they grow up. The real life Greta Thunberg and her ilk have proven young people can be powerful agents of change and the narrative has shifted to accommodate and celebrate their voices and rightly so. But among defiant stories of empowered kids, we need to offer reminders that the responsibility isn't theirs alone. Grown-ups are already helping. Children are the future, but we need to lead the way, at least for now. We owe it to them. You know, it's not a great time to be a kid. Can I just say, we grew up in a relatively worry-free environment, and now... Yep. You know, kids are worried about climate change. Kids have active shooter drills. Kids are, you know, bombarded with, you know, the political anger of people and all the books they're not allowed to read or they have to read or whatever, you know. Yeah, it's, it's not fair. It's not fair. Yeah, because a childhood is a time when you shouldn't have to worry, when you shouldn't have these burdens on you. It's the only time in your life yeah. when, you, when you don't have these burdens. Yeah. And it should stay that way. Yeah. Okay. What else you got? Okay. So let's talk about some of these adults. Okay. This is important. <laughs> okay. All right. So this is published in The Guardian, written by Jeffrey Lean. And the title is Whisper It, But the Boom in Plastic Production Could Be About to Come to a Juddering Halt. Wouldn't that be nice? A plastics treaty is on the cards. 
and it could join the rescue of the ozone layer as a landmark success in environmental diplomacy. Plastic production has soared some 30-fold since it came into widespread use in the 1960s. Left unabated, it continues to accelerate. Plastic consumption is due to nearly double by 2050. But now there's a chance that this huge growth will stop, even go into reverse. This month in Paris, the world's governments agreed to draft a new treaty to control plastics. The UN says it could cut production by a massive 80% by 2040. Such a treaty, scheduled for agreement next year, cannot come soon enough. The amount of plastic dumped in the oceans is due to more than double by 2040. And microplastics have been found in human blood, lungs, livers, kidneys, and spleens, and have crossed the placenta. No one knows the full effects on the planet or the impact of the 3,200 potentially harmful chemicals in plastics on our health. Whisper it, but with hard work, determination, and a lot of good luck, the Plastics Treaty might join the Montreal Protocol on Substances that Deplete the Ozone Layer as a landmark success in environmental diplomacy. It has several important advantages. It is backed by immense public concern, uniting a whole range of issues from litter to the oceans, human health to climate breakdown, which can be translated into political pressure. And no new technology is needed. UNEP says the 80% reduction can be achieved using proven practices, and these include simply eliminating much unnecessary single-use plastic packaging, ensuring reuse, and replacing many instances of plastic use with more sustainable biodegradable materials. Governments could also discourage the production of new plastics by taxing it and removing industry subsidies. I'm finding it hard to believe that the plastics manufacturers, we're talking about the biggest corporations in the world, mm -hmm. the most profitable companies in the world, are going to voluntarily stop making their products. Well, there's a, big, there's a big discussion about whether this would be voluntary or whether this would be required. So, all right, so let me finish this. This is, this is my important article here okay. today. Right. Crucially, like the negotiations over ozone, it has some strong business support. That's surprising. A 100-strong business coalition for a global plastics treaty, which includes giant users of plastics such as Unilever and Coca-Cola, is pressing for tough regulatory measures. Uh, I, you know, Patty. Okay, um, let, me, let me finish. Go ahead. And as in recent successful UN agreements, an alliance of governments committed to change is leading the charge. This high-ambition coalition includes all G7 countries except Italy and the U.S., Weighty, determined opposition to radical measures comes from a powerful minority of plastic-producing countries, including China, India, and the United States. Mm -hmm. And companies that have obstructed action on global heating are mobilizing. 99% of plastics are made with fossil fuels, and the industry is determined to expand their production to offset what, is, what it is losing to clean sources of energy. Yeah. There are three main sources of contention. The majority of countries want binding global rules, while their opponents insist on voluntary ones. Most countries want to limit plastics production and ban dangerous substances, while the manufacturers focus on recycling what is produced. Yep. And we know how that goes, right? Yep. And the majority want decisions to be made by vote, while many of those opposed want to keep a veto by demanding consensus. Yeah. This issue held up substantive talks in Paris for two days and is still unresolved. And beyond all this lies the ever thorny question of who will pay for the change. 
All in all, some kind of treaty is likely to emerge. How strong and effective it is will depend on how these issues are settled. So here's how it works. First, you announce you completely support the idea. Correct. Right? And that's how you get a seat at the table. Right. And then once you got a seat... Unilever and Coke yeah. and Pepsi. And once you get a seat at the table... I mean, Coke is the biggest plastic polluter in the world. Number one. Number one. So and they then just Unilever. They just want a seat at the table so they can control what the treaty looks like. Right. So like I say, first they come out and say, we're 100% for this. We're 100%, you know, we're behind For regulatory this. action. Yep. Absolutely. This is what we want. And right. then they try to, you know, weaken it all the way through so it doesn't impact their bottom line. But this, this is, the, the, game. This is the, the scary line as far as I'm concerned in this article. Companies that have obstructed action on global heating are mobilizing. 99% of plastics are made with fossil fuels, and the industry is determined to expand their production to offset what it is losing to clean sources of energy. Yeah, so what we've been saying yeah. for a while is, yeah. you know, so, I mean, plastics. They're, they're looking to plastics production to it's literally make up for, savior. for energy, gas and oil and cars, combustion engines. They're just, you know, they're moving to plastic. And you can see the ads. You know, they're beginning to, to roll them out all over the place. Plastics is our future. And you'll be hearing more about this in the rest of this show. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. There's no doubt about it. Plastic is a miracle product. In 1907, Belgian chemist Leo Bakelin discovered that the chemical compound phenol could be combined under heat and pressure with formaldehyde gas to create a cheap, lightweight, almost unbreakable material that could be made into a wide range of consumer products. Bakelin's discovery opened up a new and exciting field of chemistry, and soon laboratories around the world were humming with activity, experimenting with combinations of fossil fuels and chemicals, creating brand new materials never seen before. One of the greatest characteristics of plastic was that it was virtually indestructible. Things made from plastic might be broken into smaller pieces, but unlike products made from wood or metal or other natural materials, no combination of sun, rain, wind, biology, or ocean waves could return them to their original state. Another undeniable virtue of plastic materials was its low cost to manufacture, making plastic items cheap for consumers. And because they were cheap, consumers were encouraged to throw away any plastic product that had broken or outlived its usefulness. Apparently, few people viewed these two ideas as incompatible with the natural world. Throwing away something that was indestructible meant that every single piece of plastic ever created was going to remain on the earth somewhere in some form. Anything made of plastic was forever. Today we are living in a plastic soup with tiny pieces of plastic in our air, our water, our food, and yes, even our own bodies. In fact, children are being born with plastic in their bodies. In the northern Pacific Ocean over the past 75 years, water currents have created a deep swirl of plastic debris the size of the state of Texas. Documenting this plastic gyre and giving the world a close-up view of exactly what is happening to the plastic garbage we throw away is the domain of intrepid journalists like Erica Serino. Erica had just graduated from Stony Brook University when one of her professors was invited to join an expedition of Danish scientists who were heading out to document the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. He was invited to sail on the ship crossing the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and couldn't make it and recommended that I go for the journey. Um, as this Danish crew of sailors and scientists was seeking 
various people to communicate their research and to communicate the issue to bring attention to it on this boat. Um, and so they needed a writer. And so <laughs> I was recommended and I, I got the unbelievable op opportunity to sail aboard. Also joining us was Chris Jordan, and he's a an artist and a filmmaker who's brought attention to the plastic issue and issues of mass consumption. So we were two creative people on a boat of scientists and sailors, and it was really an unbelievable experience. And that was really the journey that uh, solidified my interest in the plastic crisis, so to speak, and kind of pushed me to consider writing a book about it because it was clear to me at that point when we when we crossed the garbage patch that the problem was so much bigger than you know litter on a beach or a six-pack ring although those are horrible things in their own ways um, it was just much worse than that the eastern north pacific gyre which is one of the most notorious garbage patches and actually the first to be kind of described in scientific literature and mass media by Captain Charlie Moore, who I had the pleasure of meeting. He runs Algalita, which is a, a research foundation based in California. And he's a sailor and he'd been sailing across in a catamaran and figured out there was a huge patch of plastic there. But unfortunately, uh, you know, the word patch can be interpreted many different ways and media reports kind of seemed to snowball from the 1990s, late 1990s when he found it to the mid and late 2000s. Um, and it was just kind of described, oh, this is a a floating dump in the middle of the Pacific, and it's it was far from that thing, um, as I saw when I when I sailed out there. Um, instead, the problem is much more grave and insidious. Unfortunately, if only it were a dump, we could just scoop it up. Instead, we have plastic particles and objects permeating the oceans from the surface down to the seafloor, and it's just an unbelievable problem. And the particles of plastic could be so small that we can't see them. That's you know what we're dealing with, and it really sheds light on the reality that plastic is never going to biodegrade benignly. It's, it's just going to break up into smaller pieces of plastic that continue to pose a danger to wildlife and, and animals and any living thing. Erica's right. The image of a garbage patch out in the ocean makes you think of a floating tangle of debris that could be collected somehow in a net and properly disposed of. But a column of water hundreds of miles across filled with tiny pieces of plastic that extends from the surface all the way to the ocean floor far below? That's a completely different story. It was very alarming to go out there and learn all these things uh, with scientists who were dipping in research equipment um, throughout the first 200 meters of the water column. And we even caught a mahi-mahi out there, which is a, a beautiful fish, otherwise known as a dolphin fish. And um, we would eat the fish because out at sea, you don't really have any fresh food. You have um, lots of cans of beans and <laughs> boxes of rice, etc. So every bit of fresh food, even for the vegetarians on board, was like, okay, we're going to respect this animal. We're going to eat this animal. However, it became much less appetizing, at least to me, um, when it was found that one of the fish had plastic in its stomach, plastic pellets, like from plastic production. So before plastic is molded into the items that we use every day, it exists as these uh, hard little pellets. They almost look like little crystals or little uh, circular drops, very small things. They've been called nurdles, um, if people have heard of that. And there have been spills, there have been huge releases of these tiny, tiny pellets into waterways, into um, onto land. So very concerning to find them in a fish <laughs> of all places. 
Ocean currents carry water to every corner of the earth, and although tremendous amounts of plastic are trapped in the gyres in the North Pacific, South Pacific, and other oceans around the world, that doesn't mean that particles of plastic are not being carried by ocean currents to the farthest reaches of the earth. The oceans are not static. That's This plastic that's in the oceans is not just sitting there. It's being smashed around, um, degraded by light into these small pieces, you know, and carried to the furthest reaches of the earth, I mean, you can find um, these plastic particles, which are commonly called microplastic or nanoplastic, depending on how small they are, nanoplastic being the smaller size, at the polar regions. And there are very few people and very few uses of plastic there, you know, other than maybe research. And in terms of these ocean currents, um, it's very interesting, too, because scientists have to consider that these currents, which might be shifting, uh, may carry higher or lower loads of plastic, depending on kind of where they've been and where they're going. So within the scientific community, alarm bells have been ringing for a while, warning us that our continued use and disposal of plastic is having a devastating impact on the earth and every human and other living thing that calls earth home. It's so serious that scientists this week were compelled to publish a study highlighting the fact that we've crossed a fifth planetary boundary, which is the human man-made emissions um, of various chemicals, including plastic. It's under the umbrella of, of these novel entities, they call them. And it's a point where, uh, a tipping point kind of, where we are just going to continue causing more harm. Um, and even if we address it, we will still have been harmed, um, very clearly so, as we know. But, you know, the problem is growing drastically worse. And every year at this present stage, plastic corporations are churning out about 350 million metric tons of plastic, um, and only 9% of all plastic ever made has been recycled. So the track record is not good for um, any of this plastic being reused. It will only be added to the 8.5 plus billion metric tons that have been made over time, and possibly most of that that has been discarded in landfills in the natural environment. You know, a small portion been incinerated, um, an even smaller portion recycled. So it's very disheartening um, to know the intentions of the corporations because it is only to churn out more and more. And scientists are calling out saying, hello, we need to stop producing so much. Um, And these scientists indeed called for a cap on the production of these hazardous substances, since clearly we cannot contain them. The structure of corporations is designed to reward profits, not altruism. Doing the right thing for the planet is not something any corporate CEO dares to propose to his board of directors, unless there is a way to do well by doing good. But in the absence of such an option for plastic manufacturers, they drive forward, building more and bigger factories to handle the projected increase in demand for plastics in the coming years, despite the clear and unambiguous signs of trouble ahead. And it is driving an increase in construction of refineries um, and processing facilities and also plastic factories, especially in the Ohio River Valley in the U.S. and in the so-called Cancer Alley, which is a horrible name for a place that is just completely saturated with industrial, mostly petrochemical and plastic development up and down both banks of the Mississippi, and this is between um, Baton Rouge and New Orleans. And there, you know, communities of color have long faced dire environmental justice issues related to the existence of these factories and facilities. And it's it's only getting worse. And um, it reiterates the fact that we really need to address the petrochemical industry as 
you know, interrelated again, like you said, with the plastic industry, because for listeners, plastic is made, conventional plastic is made from gas or oil, increasingly from gas, as is its additives and colorants and different things like that. So a lot of toxic stuff is going into plastic. The plastic industry is acutely aware of the problem it has created for the world and the public relations nightmare that is creeping up on it. The ad agency for the plastics industry has come up with a multi-million dollar campaign to try to convince Americans that plastic can be part of a clean and sustainable future. At the end of its current television commercial, a happy family dumps their used plastic into a beautiful blue recycling container as if their problem is solved. It's not. So when we have recycling, we put it out to our curbside, people do try so hard. But unfortunately, much of our recycling is not recycled. And we do have to hold corporations and governments accountable because much of what they say that they're going to do with the waste is not done with it. And that is not right. And we're told that recycling will help and it does not. So where does it go? So some of it does go to a recycling facility where it is often extremely hard to clean and decontaminate plastics of so many different varieties. And so there are various types of plastic. A plastic bag is made of a different chemical mixture than say a hard plastic bottle. There are, you know, different additives, as I said, and much plastic cannot be recycled very easily. And so in different communities, some of that plastic will just be thrown to a landfill. In other communities, plastic will be diverted and um, incinerated. And in my community, there's an incinerator here that burns um, garbage from communities nearby. So it could be something like that and then turned into energy, or it could be shipped to a developing, often developing nations. Right now, Turkey is a major uh, importer of garbage. China was a major importer until it implemented um, its national sword policy, which deterred people from uh, sending trash there. And so we see this pattern where the trash is never going away. It's only pushed onto someone else's shoulders. Um, and often these are communities of color, either Black communities, Latinx communities, Indigenous communities, and also uh lower income rural communities of all shades. And it's very alarming to see that it's becoming more common for people to share their stories and say, oh, I live next to a landfill. I live next to an incinerator. And it's it's because this infrastructure has expanded um, so widely and unfortunately next to our most vulnerable communities. And so these communities really, um, so many of them have been speaking up for so many years um, and recent calls for justice, I think, have really emphasized, you know, we do need to address these long-standing issues. If this is just becoming um, really, really a grave situation for so many people in so many communities. So what is the answer to our worldwide plastic crisis? It seems unlikely that government regulators will suddenly find a backbone and step in to stop the production of more and more plastic, or order the plastic industry to find ways to deal with the mess it has created. Maybe the solution needs to come from consumers. Turning off the tap should be our number one priority, but unfortunately, because the issue is so multifaceted, we do need to address it from so many different angles at once because we have the widespread issue with toxics and the toxics related to plastic and in plastic. Plastic is a great vector for disease, actually, we're finding out. It's not really as clean and sanitary as we've been taught it to be. And so we do have to reconsider our uses. So why do we have to use it for everything? Do we need to wrap everything in plastic if it's good at holding diseases. I don't think so. Why should we do that? Clearly, we don't need to package everything as we do. 
There are initiatives to hold corporations accountable. These are called extended producer responsibility schemes. These would force corporations to financially and logistically make plans for what happens to their waste at the so-called end of life, which is when people are done using it. And we are yet to see a very successful model roll out. Um, I've lived in Denmark for a few years and while there, I saw their versions of EPR, which included bottle deposit schemes and heavy-duty recycling, where they were trying to turn products virtually into 100% recycled content from the beginning to the end of its life into the same use it had before. So in this case, meat trays that I had seen. And it's, it is hard because um, the recycling systems are not yet up to that level yet. But I think that the more that people push for it and the more that we try to hold corporations accountable in legislation, strong legislation, there can be gains made here too, because it is forcing these corporations to do something about it. But it's hard to say that we can just offset with money and have corporations pay for cleanup, because really it is all about preventing the problem. Erica Serino is the communications manager for the Plastic Pollution Coalition and author of the book Thicker Than Water, The Quest for Solutions to the Plastic Crisis, available at your local bookstore. Before we go, I want to mention that next month, millions of people will celebrate Plastic Free July, a worldwide effort to address the plastic problem and seek other ways of conducting our lives that reduce or eliminate the use of single-use plastic. So take your own refillable container to Starbucks or Dunkin'. Ask the produce manager in the supermarket if you can have your zucchini without the styrofoam tray and the plastic wrap. Refuse the plastic bag at the checkout. Do not, do not, do not buy drinking water in plastic bottles. Spend a few more pennies and support businesses which are packaging their products in reusable or biodegradable materials. And join the worldwide action at PlasticFreeJuly.org. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. Remember, you can learn more about the program and send us comments about the show at GreenStreetNews.org. Special thanks to our guest, Erica Serino, our engineer, Josh Lyman, our associate producer, Toby Ziegler, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening. 